Welcome to Present Value. Hi, Present Value listeners. My name is Nitin Bajaj, and I'm a second-year MBA student and a fellow at the Emerging Markets Institute at Johnson. Founded in 2010, Cornell's Emerging Markets Institute provides thought leadership on the role of emerging markets and emerging market multinationals in the global economy. The Institute brings together preeminent practitioners and academics from around the world to develop the next generation of global business leaders and create the premier research center on the role of emerging markets in the global economy. I'm thrilled to introduce a conversation between Jack Moriarty and two high-profile Cornell thought leaders in the emerging markets community, Professor Ishwar Prasad and Professor Andrew Caroli. The interview touches on the dimensions of risk for emerging market investors, the role of the US dollar as a global reserve currency, and future trends affecting emerging markets such as cryptocurrency. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and as always, subscribe, share, leave a review, and follow Present Value on Instagram and Twitter, at PresentValuePod. I'm your host, Jack Moriarty, and today I couldn't be more excited to welcome Professors Andrew Caroli and Eshwar Prasad. Andrew Caroli is Deputy Dean and College Dean for Academic Affairs at the Cornell S.C. Johnson College of Business. He is a professor of finance and holder of the Harold Bierman Jr. Distinguished Professorship and the college's Johnson Graduate School of Management. He is also a professor of economics in Cornell's College of Arts and Sciences. He has published extensively in journals in finance and economics and has published several books and monographs, including Cracking the Emerging Markets Enigma, published by Oxford University Press in 2015. Professor Caroli received his BA in economics with honors from McGill University and worked at the Bank of Canada for several years in its research department. He subsequently earned his MBA and PhD degrees in finance at the Graduate School of Business of the University of Chicago. Eshwar Prasad is the Nandlal P. Talani Senior Professor of Trade Policy and Professor of Economics at the Charles H. Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management at Cornell University. He is also a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, where he holds the New Century Chair in International Economics and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He was previously chief of the Financial Studies Division in the Research Department of the International Monetary Fund, and before that, was head of the IMF's China Division. Professor Prasad received his PhD also from the University of Chicago. His research has spanned a number of areas, including labor economics, business cycles, and open economy macroeconomics. His extensive publication record includes articles in numerous collective volumes and top academic journals. He has co-authored or edited several books and monographs on financial globalization, China, and India. His current research interests include the macroeconomics of globalization, the relationship between growth and volatility, and the Chinese and Indian economies. He has contributed op-ed articles to the Financial Times, Harvard Business Review, International Herald Tribune, New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post. Professor Prasad, Professor Caroli, welcome to Present Value. It's great to be here, Jack. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you for having us, Jack. It's a pleasure. Dean Caroli, in your recent book, Cracking the Emerging Markets Enigma, you offer a quantitative framework for assessing the risk of an investment in an emerging market. Can you start by defining what an emerging market means and walk us through the six criteria you analyze in the book? Sure. Thanks, Jack. The first sentence of the first page of the first chapter of the book had to have what we consider would be a working definition of an emerging market. And in it, we talk about the fact that they are underfunded growth opportunities with problems. And you think about this from a country's perspective. 
the reason that I emphasize and pause between the words underfunded growth opportunities and with problems is because, in some sense, the book is attempting to fill in the gap in understanding about the fact that these countries are as much about the up, up, up growth opportunities that are there, which so many of my predecessor scholars who have written on the topic have focused on, to focus more attention on the problems. And I come at this because the book project itself was always intended to be a trade publication. It came, it was motivated from many, many interactions with the institutional asset management community with mandates in the emerging market space. And to them, it was as much about those aspects of those countries and those markets that impeded or held them back from taking a position in a given country as much as it was about the opportunities. And so it was really written for that audience, for that purpose. And the book is constructed around those six dimensions, that framework that you talked about. Each of the dimensions are built from scholarly academic writing, not by myself and Professor Prasad, but by many, the collective, collective wisdom and knowledge of many that have focused on that. And so we can run down the, the six dimensions around which the framework is built. So the first one is the one I would say that almost everyone out there that studies emerging markets focuses in on naturally, which is market capacity constraints. Typically, if you look at, for example, the World Bank or IMF definitions, they focus on GDP per capita. So this is the automatic first one. And if they're going to go to a second layer or second dimension, they're going to talk about something like a market capitalization ratio relative to GDP. So just how big is the market relative to the size of the economy? And in some sense, that's a proxy for how well functioning is the capital market to fund the future growth opportunities that are there. And that, that is the quick and short and dirty one. But what my measure does is try to incorporate many other dimensions of this, not just the size of the market, but also the vibrancy of it to foster that kind of capital formation to fund the future growth. So that's the first one. That's market capacity constraints. Each of these measures, by the way, Jack, it's very data-driven. And each of them have multiple metrics that go into the construction of the indices that I associate with each of these. It was always meant to be a very practical book for people out there in industry. The second dimension is a little more subtle than market capacity constraints. It's about operational inefficiencies and where it talks about the fact that what distinguishes emerging markets from developed markets and among different kinds of emerging markets is essentially the plumbing underlying the system, the infrastructure underlying the system. Unapologetically, the book is very much from the perspective of investors. It was written for that community, right? Others benefit from it, but it talks a lot about, for example, the liquidity of the underlying trading in the very markets that are there and the many proxies that we can come up with from the science of market microstructure and many other dimensions of markets. And then that work is featured prominently in that particular dimension of the markets, the liquidity and the trading systems that are underlying it, the integrity of those trading systems. Some interesting dimensions in which you get more creative and interesting is in terms of the clearance and settlement systems. And we might talk a little bit about that because that's an important part of the dimension in which we're seeing innovation in terms of financial technology around the world. But clearance and settlement systems is definitely another dimension of it, how well-functioning they are. The third metric is another one that is a little softer, a little harder to get your mind around, but for which there's a lot of vibrant research is in terms of foreign accessibility restrictions. 
So conditional on the fact that these are underfunded growth opportunities and the, there are market capacity constraints that are in place that prevent you from being able to fund them, that means that you're relying on funding sources from outside of your country of domicile. And so just how easily that capital can flow into those markets is what I try to capture in that third dimension. And it talks about restrictions on capital inflows. It can look at, for example, the currency convertibility limits that might be in place and certainly withholding tax constraints differentially with respect to foreign investors as opposed to domestic investors, the number of tax treaties that this particular country has engaged in with counterpart countries around the world. So it's soup to nuts in terms of the accessibility restrictions. And then going further into sort of yet again, softer but yet important constraints that might affect the ability of one of these emerging markets to be able to secure the funding. It looks at what I call corporate opacity, which is really about the quality of the governance systems. There's a massive amount of research in the finance literature to which I, Eshwar, Professor Prasad, and many others have contributed to that looks at the quality of the governance systems, the reporting systems that are in place, just how forthcoming must corporates be with respect to the internal ownership structure, the concentratedness of that ownership structure, and just how much with respect to fundamental financial and statement information they must be forthcoming. There's very large differences across these countries in terms of how much these disclosure systems, how, how much they differ across these countries. The fifth is what we call legal protections for minority investors. As institutional investors from around the world pursue opportunities in these emerging markets, there can be disputes that arise between two counterparties. The question in this particular dimension is just how easily can these disputes be resolved? And it looks at many different aspects of the legal systems. And it turns out there's a large amount of data, not only from the World Bank, from many other scholar teams that have looked at the quality of the legal systems that afford protections for minority investors. And last but not least, and I know we're going to talk a lot about this today, is about what I call political instability. It's a measure of the uncertainty in the political economic environment. I know a lot of people think about this when they think about emerging markets, and it's natural to have that as sort of the sixth anchor in this framework. I try to invoke in this particular chapter, in this particular measurement system of the political instability, I talk a lot about research that's actually done outside of the world of business, but among political scientists that have looked at, for example, just how easily policy can be affected in a decision-making body like a Congress or a parliament. And it turns out there's polymetricians that have done fabulous work in doing sort of empirical-driven research on that. And that's invested in, in that particular dimension. So imagine these are the six dimensions in which we talk about emerging markets. The beauty of this framework is that it's not a simple conversation about whether a country is emerging or developed. It's that these things can be fluid. They can evolve over time. And some countries can do well on some of these dimensions and maybe less well on others. And all of that is informative and interesting for, and important, I'd like to think, for these institutional investors. So there's that, maybe a long-winded, but a full-blown size-up of what's in this book and this framework. Thank you so much. Let's bring in Professor Prasad. Professor, your book, The Dollar Trap, focuses on the relationship between emerging market economies and the U.S. dollar as the incumbent global reserve currency. Can you first explain the dollar trap and how this phenomenon affects monetary policy from the perspective of an emerging market? 
It's very interesting to hear Professor Karoli talk about the key elements that define an emerging market because in many of these uh, dimensions, the U.S. is or has been seen as the pinnacle in terms of having very good institutions, political stability, good regulatory frameworks, and so on. Many of those dimensions seem to be under a little bit of threat these days. So it's interesting to see what the role of the dollar has been and might be in the future. When I wrote the book, The Dollar Trap, I was struck by one phenomenon, which was that despite the fact that the global financial crisis had its origins in the United States before, of course, it permeated to the rest of the world, and despite the fact that the U.S. financial markets seemed to be taking the biggest hit, initially at least, there didn't seem to be a flight away from the U.S. dollar. Now, when emerging markets in particular have experienced political or economic instability, and this is still the case. Money tends to flee those countries. The currency tends to depreciate very significantly in value. But something odd happened with the dollar after the global financial crisis. If anything, it became slightly stronger against virtually every other currency. In addition, at least in terms of money going into U.S. Treasury securities markets, that is, U.S. government debt, in fact, more money came into the U.S., which seemed to be imploding at the time. So I was trying to understand better what may have driven this phenomenon, and it turned out that one reason this happened is because the dollar essentially is sort of the last man standing. In international finance, ultimately everything is relative, and it turns out that the combination of deep and liquid financial markets, institutions, and also financial regulatory frameworks that the U.S. has nobody else quite has. So anytime there is trouble anywhere in the world, including the U.S., financial investors turn to U.S. financial markets, in particular U.S. Treasury securities for safety. Now the notion of the trap is that there seems to be no other place to go for safety. Emerging markets are very concerned about all the volatility they face. Professor Caroli talked about how one should think about emerging markets in terms of these multiple characteristics and those countries among the emerging market group that have better characteristics tend to get money in good times. But even if those countries do nothing wrong themselves, policies undertaken by central banks of the US, Japan, the euro area can all create volatility that causes capital to flow out of these countries. So emerging markets want protection, private investors want protection. And all of them need to find a place where they can invest large amounts of money and be able to take it out when they need it. So after the financial crisis, and in fact even before when emerging markets were building up a lot of foreign exchange reserves, which essentially amount to self-insurance to deal with capital flow volatility, they needed a place to park all this money. And it turns out the US was the best place to park the money. And that phenomenon has continued since the financial crisis. Right now about $6 trillion worth of U.S. government securities are held by foreign investors. A little over $4 trillion of that is held by foreign central banks. So the notion of the dollar trap is that these investors have no other place to go. So Russia threatened to pull out of U.S. Treasury securities markets because of the sanctions the U.S. has been putting on Russia in the post-Crimea phase. But Russia, it turns out, is not a huge investor. And when Russia took its money, out of U.S. Treasury securities markets and moved to the euro and to the renminbi, it barely dented U.S. financial markets. It barely affected U.S. government bond yields. 
If you think about China, which now holds a little over $2 trillion worth of US dollar-denominated assets, there really is no other place for them to go with that money. So the world is sort of stuck with the dollar as the dominant safe haven currency. And what is quite striking is that while there was the notion of the euro perhaps becoming a serious rival to the dollar, perhaps the renminbi becoming a serious rival to the dollar, what we've seen over the last five years, in fact, is that these rivals have stumbled and the dollar's position is, if anything, even stronger than it was before the global financial crisis. So the world is, in a sense, stuck with the dollar, not because the dollar and the U.S. economy are tremendously strong, but simply because there is no viable alternative. Professor Prasad, you mentioned the euro and the renminbi as currencies that have stumbled along the way as viable substitution threats. I'll pose the question to both of you. What factors would constitute a viable global reserve currency that might one day threaten the U.S. dollar? Well, that's the back third of Professor Prasad's book, is speculating as to what might be viable alternatives. And I remember I hosted an open book session where we introduced your book and I was your host. And I remember challenging some of those alternative hypotheses. Do you remember our discussion about that? I think you have a whole section on Bitcoin as an alternative to a fiat currency, as something that might come up through the middle and substitute for the U.S. dollar. And I remember you warned me that that may be a real alternative. I was skeptical. Do you remember? I'm trying to think of some of the alternative hypotheses that you put forward that could unseat the U.S. dollar in its primacy. So here is what my analysis led to. I argued in my book that what is really crucial to keeping the U.S. dollar dominant is not just the depth and breadth of U.S. financial markets, and U.S. government bond markets are the largest in the world by far, and they're very liquid, meaning very easy to trade in. But I argued that it was this institutional framework that is really important to maintain the trust of foreign investors. So what are the elements of the institutional framework? You need an open and transparent democratic form of government so that policies don't go entirely out of whack. You need a system of institutionalized checks and balances. You need the rule of law, which means that everybody, including the government, has to follow the same rules. And you need an independent central bank. Now, the U.S. has, like I mentioned earlier, seemingly the pinnacle of each of these dimensions, but What we've seen over the last three years is a steady erosion of all of these elements of the institutional framework. The rule of law is being challenged in many ways by the present administration. So is the independence of the Federal Reserve. There are other elements of the institutional framework that don't seem to be working very well. So it would be plausible right now that other currencies could start playing a bigger role. Remarkably, we don't see that happening. So in fact, the dollar share of global foreign exchange reserves, which is a reasonable proxy for the dollar's role as a global safe haven currency, that ratio now stands at about 62%, which is exactly where it was in 2007, just before the global financial crisis. What has changed over the last five years in particular is that there's been a reshuffling of all the second-tier currencies. So the renminbi has made some progress, but that share has come out of the euro which has stumbled over the last four or five years. So it's the weaknesses of the other currencies that make it difficult to see a viable alternative to the dollar. Although, by all normal logic, if we were living in a world with a better international financial system, a better system of global governance, the dollar should certainly be facing far more significant challenges than it appears to be. 
Professor Prasad, you noted the importance of open democratic institutions and the rule of law. This point ties in nicely with Professor Caroli's final risk dimension of an emerging market, which is political instability. And I wanted to shift the conversation to autocracy because we're experiencing a global trend of increased autocracy around the world. We see it in China, Brazil, Turkey, the Philippines, Russia, And as you've mentioned, arguably, even here in the United States, the U.S. was recently downgraded in a democracy index published by The Economist. Given the importance of political stability in maintaining these robust financial markets and institutions, how has the uptick in autocratic regimes affected global financial markets? Yeah, the logical reasoning is is really quite straightforward. You need robust political institutions to reduce policy uncertainty. Reducing policy uncertainty can foster greater investment. And that can be not only financial investment, it could be infrastructure investment and just investment, capital investment in general. Where you see an uptick in autocracy and you see it in many different interesting, fascinating pockets around the world, what that implies for us is that there are fewer political constraints on the resident decision leader in that respective market. And fewer political constraints can lead to more unexpected shifts and twists in policy. And that's going to impede investment. So that's the logical reasoning behind the importance of the political institutions. Now, the bigger question is, why are we seeing an uptick in the autocracy? Where is this coming from? A lot of discussion now is evolving. And I know that Professor Prasad has definitely been a thought leader in this dimension for the past 10, 15 years, which is this pressure towards deglobalization that is stemming from large swaths of populations in many of these countries feeling disaffected by the goals and objectives and initiatives associated with globalization. People are feeling left out by those gains that some are realizing. This is widening the inequality in many of these markets, and it's only through the ballot box that many of these countries are being able to, these pressures on greater inequality, that these voices are being heard. And that is what many experts are saying are the root causes of this rise in autocracy. It may be the very unmaking of the great and beautiful thing of a globalized financial and economic system that may be sowing the seeds of this discontent and this rise in autocracy. I don't know what your take is on on all this. So Professor Caroli's work has been very influential in pointing out how important both public governance and corporate governance are in terms of generating stable financial flows, in terms of generating good macroeconomic outcomes from those financial flows. And it seems a reasonable logical proposition that the lack of checks and balances that typically characterize autocracies shouldn't work as well as democratic governments. But we are at a peculiar point in history when a lot of the instability actually seems to be coming from democratically elected governments. If you think about turmoil that is being caused not just in the U.S. but worldwide by the present administration in the U.S., if you think about Brexit-related uncertainties that are roiling Britain and therefore Europe, if you think about what is happening in the continental European economies where democratic systems are under enormous stress, If you think about India, which has a stable majority government, and quite remarkably for India, given its political history, this is a government that didn't even need to form a coalition. It is a single-party government, but it is one that seems to have certain autocratic tendencies. So we find actually democracies veering towards this very dangerous path where the leaders seem to be trying to get rid 
of the checks and balances. And that, I think, comes to this point that Professor Caroli has been talking about. Ultimately, the framework is what matters and whether it will be robust enough to get through these challenges remains to be seen. But while we think about corruption being rampant in autocracies and there not being checks and balances, the unfortunate reality that we are seeing is that even democratic systems do seem susceptible to capture. Now, I think at some level, we all have faith that ultimately institutions will prevail, that the U.S. in particular will get through this rather difficult period. But certainly, building up institutions takes a long time. Eroding them can happen quite quickly. So I worry a great deal about what the future holds in terms of this balance between autocracies and democracies and what form even democracies will take in the future. One of the pressures we've seen on the separation of powers here in the U.S. is, as you referenced, Professor Prasad, the importance of the independence of the central bank. We've seen heightened pressure on the Federal Reserve in the context of the trade war with China, particularly the pressure to use the Fed as a lever to ease some of the economic harms we've incurred in the trade war. How do you see central bank independence tying into this conflict? It's worrying. Going back to where we started, one of the reasons why global investors have faith in the U.S. dollar and in U.S. financial markets is the sense that there are important institutions like the Fed that are not subject to the political whims of the day that will preserve the value of the U.S. dollar, that will foster economic stability, and all of those propositions come under some threat if such institutions become subject to political influence. Now, Even an institution like the Fed, which has a somewhat technocratic mandate, cannot be divorced from the political process. Ultimately, every institution is accountable to the polity, it is accountable to the people. But what can make an institution like the Federal Reserve or any central bank most effective is if the mandate is agreed to by the government, duly elected government, and then the institution, the Fed in this case, has the independence to go about achieving that mandate. If you have the government telling the Fed how it should achieve its mandate and more importantly tries to switch its mandate and subjugate it to narrow political purposes, that is a real risk. It's a risk to the credibility of the institution and ultimately could end up affecting financial markets. So there is, I think, a real concern here that the erosion of the institutional framework that we are talking about could have effects that are quite large, and especially if certain policies of the government, such as generating trade tensions with multiple trading partner countries, China most prominently, but also with other uh, trading partner countries, if the offset to that is seen as basically twisting the Fed's arm to limit the economic damage, that I think creates a further round of economic damage that could end up being quite long-lasting. Following up on that, it reminds me that as much as it may be concerted and focused actions by the Fed and with respect to the politically elected institutions in a country like in the United States, sometimes just given the sheer size of the influence of the Fed, there can be unintended consequences from actions that may be fully interpreted as being consistent with their mandate. It reminds me of back in 2013. We're coming out of the global financial crisis. We're seeing slower growth. We're seeing an aggressive bond-buying, quantitative easing program that fostered this incredibly unprecedented low-yield environment in the United States. And suddenly, during that period, in the pursuit of yield, wherever we could find it, many institutional investors here in the United States were going abroad. And they were targeting emerging markets, not just, but definitely that whole asset class was robust and growing like crazy. And 
many of those countries benefited from that capital flow during that period of time. And then in May of 2013, at that time, Chairman Ben Bernanke announced that sometime soon, probably before the end of the calendar year, we would begin to, quote unquote, his word, normalize. In other words, to basically dial back on the quantitative easing program. And of course, naturally, investors immediately assumed that that would mean that we would start to normalize, move back into a a non-zero lower bound interest rate environment. And suddenly there was massive capital retrenchment back to the U.S. This created a lot of instability in many of these emerging markets and led to many central bankers around the world, especially in the emerging market space, to basically call foul on the Fed's actions. And the Fed was clearly acting in its own best interest, not realizing the full global implications of its actions. It's a fascinating clinical case study where it's not actually political entities that would be influencing the Fed. They were actually right down, you know, working down their lane, but yet their actions had unintended consequences that have implications for markets all around the world, including the emerging markets. I would definitely like to emphasize the point that Professor Prasad was making, which is the worrying part is when you use the power of the pulpit, the moral suasion powers of the executive branch or the elected Congress to put pressures on an agency like the Fed to serve as some sort of compensating differential force for fiscal actions or international trade negotiations that may be creating this instability over here. That, I have to admit, is, is a worrying element to all of this. Andrew, you made this interesting point that the Fed ends up affecting the rest of the world through its actions because it's still the dominant central bank in the world. Now, tying that in with the themes of your book, did countries that ranked well in terms of those dimensions that you spoke about, did they fare better in terms of dealing with the volatility created by the Fed's actions? Or was it a mixed blessing that they got more capital inflows and therefore were more subject to volatility? Thank you for asking that. It's chapter 10 in the book. I call it the bonus chapter. I was already in process in writing the book and this event happened at the round about the same time. And in fact, there is evidence that the countries that had better quality institutions were able to hold on to their capital, notwithstanding the retrenchment that was happening back to the U.S. So there is some validity to the fact that countries with good corporate governance systems were able to hold on to that capital a little bit better than those that had weaker governance systems. Countries that had less political instability as reflected in their institutions were able to hold on to the capital that they experienced in the preceding surge post-GFC global financial crisis, whereas those that had more fragile institutions were unable to hold on to that capital. So there's some evidence in favor of that. You can actually extrapolate that to actually individual firms within those markets, say equities, stocks, companies that had better governance mechanisms in place individually were able to hold on to the interests of over global institutional investors, notwithstanding this huge wave of pressure to retrench back to the US at this time. So just another validation of the concepts that lie behind all of this. So in your excellent book, if I might ask another question, and by the way, the book ought to be must-read for anybody listening to this podcast. You made this interesting point that the countries that got through the global financial crisis better were the ones that had the right policies. 
right now we see emerging markets becoming a little vulnerable again do you think they unlearned some of those lessons or is this a different group of emerging markets that somehow lost their way well they're moving organisms right and we track all of these things policies change the politically elected groups leading these countries are evolving governance systems are being reformed some are being returned to earlier less well-functioning systems. So these things are all moving over time. I think this is sort of a, a fundamental state of the world in the emerging market space, is that these dimensions as they are, are always going to be changing. They are always going to be changing. And it's, to my mind, it's the most important learning that comes out of all of this is for a institutional investor to be effective in being able to be the most responsible investor they can be on behalf of their sponsors. Tracking the evolution of these different dimensions of these emerging markets seems to be the absolute right thing to do. Speaking of the dimensions of these emerging markets, let's take a step back on China. We read about China daily in the press, and it's considered to be both the primary economic rival of the U.S. and the most salient emerging market. How do you consider China with respect to your risk dimensions, Professor Caroli, or some of your work, Professor Prasad? I'll go first and I'll talk about what's happened to the scores for China. China's always been, when presenting this work, it's always been a question that comes up. It's the ultimate enigma. China is the ultimate enigma to be cracked, as it were. So what was always interesting about China that would surprise audiences was that it was a typical emerging market in terms of a number of the dimensions with respect to, for example, market capacity with respect to the legal protections that are in place for foreign institutional investors that go and proceed to take advantage of the opportunities there. Where in China has always been traditionally very strong is in terms of the measures of the plumbing of the system, the operational efficiencies of the system. It actually rises well above many in the pack of what we would traditionally call the emerging market class, but what always would inevitably hold China back in terms of their overall scores across all six dimensions, were two. One, the political instability. Now, that's a really funny concept in the context of China, but in a one-party system, you think about this, there are many fewer political constraints towards what kind of policies could be affected. The system is well established for it to be able to pursue policies as it sees fit in terms of the traditional measures of this. So China would not score well on that dimension. And the other was in terms of corporate governance, the corporate opacity scores. It was typically low. Now, over time, since the book was first written, the tracking of the data that go into these scores has suggested that they have become much improved on the corporate governance dimension. I wouldn't say it's massive improvements, but it is positive delta on that dimension. So I don't know. With that, I don't know how it frames the way we think about the things that we are seeing in China today. Hey, China is. Uh massive economy that clearly cannot be ignored anymore. It is now a $13 trillion economy, about two-thirds the size of the U.S. economy at market exchange rates. It has relatively big financial markets. Its bond markets are the fourth largest in the world right now. So it has all the elements, but many of these institutional features that we've spoken about and that uh, Professor Caroli has alluded to become very important, especially when one thinks about international investors moving into those markets. International investors are a little wary about moving into those financial markets because even though China 
is a dynamic and fast-growing economy, the financial markets tend to be somewhat disconnected from what is happening in the real economy. The stock market did very well some years ago during a period when the economy seemed to be slowing down. The stock market has not done well recently. Now the Chinese government has opened the doors to foreign investors to be able to come and invest in its fixed income markets, both government bonds and corporate bonds. And you would think that given that this is a fast-growing economy, given that this is an economy that seems to have, at least in a narrow sense, political stability, that foreign investors would rush in. They haven't. Partly because there are concerns about whether the books of the corporations that issue these corporate securities can be taken at face value, whether the auditing and accounting procedures, whether the broader corporate governance framework really matches up to international standards. And while there certainly has been progress, as Professor Caroli pointed out, there is still a pretty big gap relative to international standards. The other important institutional dimension is the rule of law. Now, the Chinese government views itself as being subject to the rule of law, but it's a much narrower definition. It is one where there are rules that relate to, say, contractual rights, property rights, that the government enforces. But this is not a legal system that supersedes the government itself. In other words, a government can change the rules of the game at any moment. In most advanced economies, including the US, it's still the case that the government also has to play by the same rules. It can get taken to court. It sometimes does lose because they have to play by the rules. And these elements, such as the rule of law, a good corporate governance frameworks, good auditing and accounting procedures, and other elements of institutions are very important for engendering the trust of foreign investors. And that's what China lacks at this stage. It has size, it has the economic dynamism, but markets to some extent have spoken, and no matter what people in markets might say, where they put their money is what ultimately matters. And they seem quite wary about putting money into China. The Chinese government is also dealing with the crisis in Hong Kong after more than three months of political unrest and pro-democracy protests. Professor Prasad, you wrote this past summer in the New York Times that China no longer needs Hong Kong after using it as a testing ground for monetary innovation for many years. Can you explain what you meant by that and how you envision the conflict might end for both sides given the strategic interests involved? Once upon a time, by which I mean maybe a decade or two decades ago, it was important for China to use Hong Kong is a testing ground for things like capital market opening, for financial liberalization, where it felt that there might be risks that would be difficult to manage on the mainland. So it became a very good testing ground. In addition, Hong Kong always has had strong institutions, including the rule of law. So it served as a very useful conduit for China to get connected to global financial markets in a way where the risks could be managed. Before China entered the World Trade Organization, Hong Kong also served as a conduit for China to trade with the rest of the world without being subject to too many restrictions. That became less of an issue after China entered the World Trade Organization in 2001. But Hong Kong has played an important role as a financial center that does help China in many dimensions. But now, with its attempt to open up the capital account, with its attempt to create Shanghai or advance Shanghai as an international financial center in addition to other potential financial centers such as Shenzhen, and given China's sheer size right now, Hong Kong has become a lot less important. And I argued in my piece that perhaps things have shifted to a point where China now saw Hong Kong as playing a potentially useful role in another dimension, which is to show how 
a country could switch from a rule of law the way I defined it very broadly with institutions the way we've been talking about them to having Chinese-style institutions, Chinese-style rule of law and still prosper. The protests that are taking place right now are calling into question that strategy, of course. So right now it's a very dangerous time for Hong Kong. But the point in that piece was that China may have a very different perception about what role Hong Kong could play in its own development, both in terms of societal development, but also economic development. Yeah, that was actually, that piece got you a lot of attention. And I think it probably inspired a lot of thinking about this. One of the big innovations that I know that the Shanghai and Shenzhen Stock Exchange, particularly Shanghai Stock Exchange, leveraged with Hong Kong's preeminent position as a global financial center was the Hong Kong-Shanghai Connect. And this was a mechanism by which you could basically open up, open up the access for not only domestic investors in China to global securities, but also many foreign investors that wouldn't need to secure, for example, licenses, qualified foreign institutional investor licenses. They could actually access those markets directly through this Hong Kong-Shanghai Connect. And it was something that got a lot of attention for Shanghai to the point where they've now begun to do other ancillary innovations beyond that. The other big change that happened that reflects this leveraging that took place, or maybe beyond the leveraging to the point where China has now been able to secure its place without using Hong Kong for that end, is through the fact that many, many Chinese companies now are directly listing in New York, for example, to access these global institutional investors. I think we're just shy of now 400 companies that are listed on NASDAQ and the NYSE. There was once a day where there was no way you would go into New York on NASDAQ or NYC as a Chinese company unless you had already established yourself with an H share in Hong Kong. So the traditional sort of staging of financing was I list on Shenzhen, Shanghai and an A share, maybe have an ancillary B share that would allow some foreign investment through licenses, then support that with an H share listing in Hong Kong. But then eventually it would turn into a, a listing in New York to again, open themselves up. That was sort of the traditional model. Many, many Chinese companies skipped the Hong Kong part. And now we have this very, very large, large complement of Chinese companies that have presented themselves to global investors directly through a listing in the US. So that's something that I have to follow up on, Andrew, because you've done a very influential work making the point that a listing on US stock exchanges used to be a big prize that international corporations coveted. They would come here because it gave them a halo effect. And then I know you've done very important work showing that that halo effect seemed to have become less important. Companies were not listing as much or delisting, but you're saying that Chinese corporations have still retained a strong incentive to list here? They have. And it's fascinating to look at the composition of firms from around the world that are now pursuing this opportunity of listing on major U.S. exchanges. That, that was the prize. We call it the bonding hypothesis that Professor Prasad is talking about. It used to be that emerging markets as a contingent of foreign companies that are listing in New York used to be a small, maybe a 10%, 20% of the overall contingent. It's now grown to about 50%. And about half of that 50% from emerging markets around the world is China. It says that while many developed market companies have now started to retreat and go back home and be very happy with the listing back in their respective domestic markets, Emerging markets have stayed and Chinese companies have held steady. Maybe it's a new challenge to the existing theories about this phenomenon that drives this sort of evolution of listings around the world. But I definitely comment, on, I, I definitely see the fact that Hong Kong no longer serves the same purpose that it once did as a financial center. 
for China that it once did 10 years ago. And I think that this, this is a little piece of evidence that supports your argument. Developments in Hong Kong have also heightened some of the tensions between free speech and the sometimes conflicting political values in emerging markets. A notable recent example was the GM of the Houston Rockets tweeting in support of the Hong Kong protesters and the subsequent adverse ramifications that had on the NBA's involvement in China. How do you think about the ethical considerations when it comes to free speech rights here in the U.S. coming into conflict with those abroad? What comes to mind immediately when I think about that, Jack, is the fact that Freedom of speech is really a manifestation of economic freedoms in general for people. And that is always an organic element of our measures of the vibrancy and healthfulness of the political institutions that are in place. It's no different than the existence of corruption, the ability to suppress corruption. It's all dimensions of that aspect of society. What we do know is that this is clearly something that's on investors' minds. It's clearly something that's on consumers' minds. It's clearly on the minds of anyone that is consuming this information. And so, especially when it comes to thinking about China, but not just about China. It's sort of a a common thread through many of these countries, these problematic countries that we we associate with the emerging market space. You know, I I think about what happened in the last couple of days with respect to this, this issue, and I'm sure that the general manager of the Houston Rockets probably regrets having done it. We know that he must have because he deleted the tweet. But I think that what one can take from this is that it is on people's minds broadly, and it should be something that we would have expected the Chinese government to respond to somehow in turn. And they may yet still. There are two dimensions to this issue. One is the issue of moral principle. And then the second is about ultimately what investors seem to care about. And as Professor Caroli correctly pointed out, whatever one might say in terms of the principle, it seems to be the case that investors do care about not just the economies, but also the societies they're investing in, because elements such as free speech, democracy, the rule of law tend to go together. Not necessarily, but they do tend to be correlated and investors do seem to prefer environments that they see as more stable. Now, democracies, of course, do have change. Governments do change. You do have instability in governments. But I think there is the notion that the democratic process provides a self-correcting mechanism that prevents policies from going too much out of whack over the long term, although certainly that proposition is sorely being tested in many countries at the moment. Before we move on from China, I'd be remiss not to revisit the trade war. The political genesis of the trade war was driven heavily by President Trump's view that China has been a longstanding currency manipulator. However, an alternative view is that while the Hong Kong dollar deliberately tracks the U.S. dollar, the value of the renminbi is driven more by market forces. How persuasive do you find the currency manipulation accusation? Once upon a time, there might have been merit to the argument. For the last three years or so, there hasn't been. Typically, the notion of currency manipulation is that a country intervenes in a persistent way to prevent its currency from appreciating. Why would a country do that? It's because if your currency appreciates, your exports become a lot less competitive. Now, the good thing about currencies appreciating is that imports become cheaper. People within that economy can buy more foreign stuff cheaply, but it does affect jobs. Until from about the mid-1990s until 2005, the renminbi was maintained at a stable value relative to the dollar. After June of 2005, the Chinese central bank did allow the renminbi to appreciate against the U.S. dollar, but control that appreciation 
and it controlled that appreciation by intervening in foreign exchange markets, essentially buying up a lot of dollars and selling the RMB. That's how the government prevented from the renminbi from appreciating too fast. So over the period from 2005 to the middle of 2014, China went from about $200 billion worth of reserves to nearly $4 trillion worth of reserves. So it was intervening very aggressively in foreign exchange markets. And during this period, previous administrations, of course, had skirted very close to calling China currency manipulator, but in the broader interests of maintaining economic engagement with China, decided not to do that. In 2014, things changed. The Chinese economy started weakening, the stock market started losing its luster, and capital started flowing out of China to a greater extent than capital coming into China. So the renminbi actually started depreciating relative to the US dollar. So for the last three, four years, in particular, what the Chinese central bank has been trying to do is prevent the currency from depreciating too fast against the US dollar. So they have been intervening in foreign exchange markets, but in the reverse of what would normally trigger a currency manipulation charge. And in fact, it's a particularly odd time for the Trump administration to be accusing China of currency manipulation. Because if the Chinese central bank were to step back and allow market forces to take their course, it is likely that the renminbi would in fact depreciate against the dollar, giving China a competitive advantage rather than a disadvantage. So while there might have been merit to the charge some years ago, at the moment it's not a charge that can be supported on its economic merits. I've always had a hard time with the concept of having to tag some central bank with currency manipulation as a tag. You know, in the, in the aftermath of Bretton Woods, almost every central bank around the world, including during my early formative years at the central bank in Canada, where I, where I started my professional career, have, we've always been very actively engaged in markets. And so the tag seems to not, it doesn't seem to resonate with me as a meaningful exercise to have this tag. I know there was once a purpose for it, but I've, I react like that whenever I hear the argument of whether we should tag them with this title or not. It just feels like a, a very orthogonal to the real issues kind of a situation. At this point, what have been the ramifications on the U.S. and Chinese economies of the trade war? And looking ahead, who stands to lose and gain? Well, I can tell you who stands to lose most of all is economic agents, corporations, investors who are interested in pursuing opportunities and are feeling unable to move because of the uncertainty as to what will happen next. To me, what's the overwhelming story here, the headline that drives all is the enormous cloud of uncertainty about what will be the international trading relationship between these two behemoth countries in the world. I know many other countries are watching very carefully. We just, I think corporations, investors, they just need to know what the rules of the game will be so that they can proceed. So I, I know that they are actually, I would call them losers in this, in this exchange. And what Professor Caroli pointed out is really the key. There is some short-term damage to both economies, but it can be managed. These are very large economies. The amount of trade they do each other seems large in absolute amounts, but it's not something that is going to devastate either economy. There will be some sectors in each economy, certain exporters from China to the U.S., soybean exporters, Midwest of the U.S. who depend on Chinese markets. But both countries have enough resources to manage those short-term problems. But as Professor Caroli correctly pointed out, 
the trade tensions with China and U.S. trade tensions with many other trading partners as well is creating concerns in the U.S. and other major economies around the world, which makes businesses shelve their investment plans because businesses care about uncertainty. And we've seen this very weak investment growth in the U.S., very weak private investment growth in China. And investment growth is really important in terms of the long-term growth, both in terms of GDP, but also productivity. So there could be potential longer-term consequences, even if the short-term consequences are limited and can be mitigated through other policies. In our remaining time, I'd like to switch gears to an area that you've both spent considerable time on, which is cryptocurrency. We've seen three types of crypto, either in theory or practice. Non-official cryptocurrencies, such as Bitcoin, a corporate-backed currency, such as Facebook's proposed Libra initiative, and the possibility one day of a sovereign-backed cryptocurrency. To what extent do either of you view crypto as a potential substitution threat to the U.S. dollar as a global safe asset? And what are the potential implications of a sovereign cryptocurrency on financial markets? When I first read Professor Prasad's book five years ago, and I remember reading that one section of his book where he talks about what could be the alternatives that might unseat the preeminent position of the U.S. dollar as the world's global currency, reserve currency, that he proposed the idea that a cryptocurrency like a Bitcoin could come along and come up through the middle and, and unseat it. I have to admit, I was extremely skeptical. And I'm still skeptical, but I've moved towards the fact that this might be a serious reality. Five years is just an eon since the early days in which we were talking about Bitcoin. There's plenty of reasons to be still skeptical because of the fact that there's research evidence that suggests private currencies like you classified decentralized census currency, like a Bitcoin, Ethereum, and many others, as being subject to the risk of manipulation by participants. The fact that we've seen a, a just a plethora of these things launched through initial coin offerings makes one naturally cautious and worried about its future long-run prospects and how it will evolve. But I, I think of it as a much more realistic option than I once did. I'm going to admit to my moving my priors, in part through your thought leadership on this question. So I offer a view that is somewhat nuanced in terms of making a distinction between what cryptocurrencies might do, at least in terms of their underlying technologies, in terms of improving something that Professor Caroli referred to earlier, payments and settlement systems, which are quite inefficient in the U.S. in particular. China is ahead of the U.S. in some ways in this respect. International payments are still very inefficient, so there is potential to do better. I don't think the non-official cryptocurrencies are going to gain a huge amount of traction, especially not as stores of value, because ultimately you need trust in somebody or an institution, and I don't think public distributed ways of creating trust, which is sort of the notion underlying Bitcoin, are going to be very effective over the long run. But the technology is going to matter a great deal. There are currencies that could be issued by companies like Facebook, if Libra does get off the ground, that could play a very important role as payment systems. But it's important to remember that Libra is, at least as advertised, going to be backed by holdings of reserve currencies. So in other words, it's not going to be an independent store of value. The reason it'll be a stable medium of exchange is that it's backed by existing fiat currencies such as the US dollar, perhaps the euro, the yen, and so on. There is the realistic prospect that central banks around the world will start considering issuing central bank digital currencies now, they could be issued using cryptographic technology, but that's not essential. There are some countries, such as Tunisia and Uruguay, 
which have already experimented with central bank digital currencies, which are very simple forms of CBDCs, essentially app-based cryptocurrencies that are designed to broaden financial inclusion. Sweden and China are in the throes of conducting experiments of a different kind of central bank digital currency, which is sort of like maintaining an account with the central bank. And essentially, the central bank would intermediate retail payments. So there is the prospect that digital versions of central bank currencies could become prevalent. And I think there are very good economic arguments to be made why countries might move towards that, either to broaden financial inclusion or perhaps to promote stability of the financial system so that not the entire payments or infrastructure is controlled by the private sector. So there are some difficult conceptual and design issues to be dealt with, but I see central bank digital currencies as happening fairly soon. It could well be the case that central bank digital currencies coexist with some non-official cryptocurrencies that end up playing important roles as medium of exchange. So there could be a bifurcation of these two functions with central bank-issued currencies, either in physical or analog form, remaining important stores of value, but the non-official ones becoming very important as means of payment and settlement. So some change, some bifurcation is coming, and we might see these roles of money being split among these various options. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think I think harvesting the underlying blockchain technology that is part of the first and early cryptocurrencies that were launched for other things like clearance and settlement systems to make them more robust for the audit functions and reporting systems for ensuring the integrity of global supply chains. There's just enormous potential from the technology that lies behind. So we should be grateful for that, which came from the early currencies. But I suspect that on the currency dimension itself, I suspect your, your forecast is probably right. We're going to see more symbiotic fiat digital currencies side by square evolving in more and more markets over the, over the course of time. And that, that's probably a good thing. Professor Caroli, Professor Prasad, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you both today. Thank you so much for joining us on Present that was Value. Fun, Jack. Thank you very much. It's been an honor being on the show with my good friend, Professor Caroli, and it's been fun. Ditto here. Thank you very much, S.Y. The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by the Present Value team. I'm your host for this episode, Jack Moriarty. Our engineer was Sam Lupowitz. Music by Poddington Bear. Logo by Kalechi Pomongo. Special thanks to Cornell's Language Resource Center for their technical assistance. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.